Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Goodbye. <laughs> um, the strange disembodied voice experience. Okay. Uh, I suppose I should say this by way of introduction. You'll have to forgive me. I've been fighting a cold for the past couple of weeks, and my ears have been coming in and out. And at the moment, they're both they're both completely gone. So I have this strange, like, voice inside my head that I, I think is, well, it's mostly mine. <laughs> and it's kind of rattling my skull. But I can't hear much of anything else. Those people have been coming up to me all day, and I'm, I'm assuming saying nice things. They're giving me lots of like these and, you know, kind of just smiling. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'll also, um, Corinne told me, that I shouldn't begin uh, the message by, by apologizing, right? She's like, don't do that. That's a bad idea. And, um, and I just did it. <laughs> and, and now I realize I'm, I'm about to do it again. So, <laughs> so here it is. I'm going to try and keep the message under an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> I am sorry about last time. Got away from me. Couldn't be helped. Uh, I will try and um, stay on topic and uh, tell less stories. Um, but that being said, <laughs> I heard that, actually. That's, that's very much so audible. Um, <laughs> that being said, I would like to begin our time together with a story that may be a bit off topic. So, <laughs> uh, but before we begin, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for... Um, our family, we get to gather together, and uh, for your your grace, your goodness to always redeem our time together, to uh, you know, let us leave this time with something to think about, something to uh, to to weigh as we move forward and and walk closer to you, cling more tightly to you, and be changed in the presence of you, because we sh- should always be. Standing before you is no small thing. And it should change us. It, it, should, it should awaken us. It should make us alive. On fire, shining brightly in this world that so desperately needs you. And Lord, we, we trust you to do that. And we know that you can. And so we place uh, our time in your hands. And, and, and we know that you'll do what you always seem to do with it. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. Um, we have these assemblies about every other week at the school at which I teach, um, and they're essentially rallies, uh, which might be strange for elementary school. I haven't taught at a lot of other elementary schools, so <clears throat> I don't know how abnormal that is, but it, it seems a bit abnormal to me. We have these rallies so often, and, and the students uh, put their Viper Bucks, our school's mascot-themed monetary incentive in this large spinning drum to be pulled out as raffle tickets so they could win prizes and teachers compete uh, for best attendance to have their classroom flag flown on the flagpole and were given pom-poms to cheer vigorously for our grade level. And I think we have um, somewhat of an um, unspoken understanding that it's acceptable for me not to participate in the pom-pom parade. Um, no one's ever said anything to me about it, but we're at a bit of a stalemate, I suppose, uh, because neither one of us want to broach the subject. About a month ago, um, uh, we were having one of these rallies. It had rained the day before. The ground was, was moist, sprinkled maybe a bit that morning. <coughs> Students sat on the lawn, you know, anxiously awaiting for their name to be called for the raffle prize or or for our grade level to be named the school winner for our flag to be flown. And, you know, just it, it so happens that our classroom has won that award seven times. So basically killing it, you know. <laughs> um, might as well be renamed the Mr. Turner Award. Um, but all of a sudden I noticed that there was this tremendous ruckus in my otherwise perfect line and these students were jumping up and running away and screaming and and they were grabbing at the ground and some of them were punching it and even one had taken off uh, his shoe and began pounding on the ground and and they were beginning to to draw a bit of an audience so so I walked over there quickly to come to uh, their aid and just devastated and tormented children what could possibly be wrong? How could I be of assistance to them? And then I saw it, the scourge of my second graders, a worm. <laughs> right? And by this point, yeah, stomped and pinched and pummeled, and it was writhing in pain and wriggling about wildly. And I looked at those kids and said something that I find myself saying so often, why, you know, just, just why would you do this? And if you've ever worked with kids or you have your own kids, or maybe, you know, you're planning on having kids one day, get ready, you know, for the why. There's just so much of it. You know, one day I woke up and I think it was Leland, right? He had covered one of our chairs, right? Like our armchairs in the den with lotion. And he's just standing there just lotioning the chair, just... <laughs> Nice, supple fabric. And I just looked at him. Just, just why? Why would you do this? You know, and, and about a week ago, they came inside and they were playing outside. It looked reasonably clean. And then Corinne went to take off his diaper to change him. And it was just filled with dirt, you know. And just why? It's as if he walked outside and just saw all the dirt in the world that could exist in a universe and just collected it and opened up his diaper and just started piling it in just one handful after another. And we just looked at him. We said, why, why would you do this? 
And, and my students that day did what they so often do. They, they, they launched into this storm of overlapping and contradictory narratives, this, this like carefully orchestrated bombardment of, uh, of threads. And, and so I did what I often do. I abandoned the inquiry stage and moved right to the remedy stage. And shaking my head, I picked up the worm, which is gross, right? And I shouldn't have to do that with the pom-poms, both things <coughs> I should not have to do. But I picked up the worm, and, and much to my surprise, <coughs> it seemed as if that was the last thing that it wanted to happen in its life at that point. Like it understood its current circumstance as less than ideal, but then a greater of this kind, right? Like the largest second greater possible and a hairy one to boot <laughs> just walked up, picked him up, and he was thrashing about like a wild animal. And, and I, I tightened my grip to a degree while still maintaining a gentle touch to let it know that I meant it no harm. And we walked to a safe distance. I found a, a deserted spot in the grass and I set the worm down there. And, and if... It's possible to read the face of a worm, which, of course, you cannot do. I would say that it appeared perplexed. But that day on the lawn, all I kept thinking was how confounding of an experience that must have been for that worm, right? Just the worst day of his life, beaten nearly to death by strange creatures merely for popping up out of the ground <laughs> and then carried off by a bigger, scarier of that type, their leader, no doubt, and discarded on the ground, no doubt, awaiting a worse fate, right? Wouldn't you think the same thing? Dumped on the ground, now it's going to get really bad. I mean, I've seen this guy's shoes. When he takes them off and starts slamming them down on me, yeah, I'm, I'm done for sure, right? And I must admit that in that moment, I saw myself in that worm. <clears throat> it seems like the more I learn about my Savior, the more I conclude that I don't really understand him. You know, the closer I get to him, day after day, he's different and surprising and wonderful. And the years go on, and I become more like that worm in my perception of him rather than less. And that's not the way it should be, right? I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. Uh, that, was, that was eons ago for I'm an old man now, right? And the world, it felt like at that time, was just rhythmically timed punches coming down on me in moist soil. It felt like a pummeling of a shoe from an angry child and a great hand came and scooped me up and it was equal parts disorienting and comforting and somehow every step that he took in the journey getting me away from that I felt more confounded by him these complex and nuanced in ways that I could have never realized when we first met and he's wonderful and surprising, and he's clever, and he's calculated, and he's just, he's not just a bigger second grader, right? He's something different. 
entirely. And I was a worm in the hands of, of a man realizing that I needed to reshape my entire paradigm, my, my full perception of what I thought possible and everything that I thought I understood. Who is this person? Right? What is his game? Why is he so different than others? Am I supposed to be in this new patch of grass? What's my purpose here? Right? Did the pain from the children allow me to be displaced by the giant? Should I be grateful for the pain that they brought to me? Is he like this with all worms? My special worm? Are all worms special worms? In fact, is a worm would ever ask those questions. And at this point, you're probably sitting there thinking, it's a little ridiculous that you're even doing this. But those are the right questions. The difference between us and that worm is astronomical. How great is the difference between us and our God? Right? Isaiah 55, 9 is a remarkable verse, right? That no doubt you've heard, some of you committed to memory. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As far as the or as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than my ways and my thoughts, higher than your thoughts. Do I really feel like I need to understand everything? So yes, I do. <laughs> and I don't think I'm alone in that, right? I feel like I need to, and I feel like, like I can if I just try hard enough, it's probably not a reality, right? It's probably never going to happen for me. But do I need to? Do we need to understand everything? Did the worm need to understand what was happening in order for him to save that day? Not really, right? He just needed to not fight his way out of my hands in order to be saved. And the good news is that God's hands are much stronger than my hands. And today we're going to read a truly confounding text, one that has made me feel like a worm every time that I've read it because I don't understand it fully. And some would say, correctly, that that's a bad idea for picking a topic on which to speak, <laughs> a passage that you really don't understand. <laughs> I would agree with you, right? It's, it's been a difficult month. It really has been. Reading it, rereading it, and just agonizing over it. Because I've never gotten it, and I wanted to study it. I wanted to invest the time like a worm to understand something far beyond me. And about last night at midnight, I had this moment where, where it, it, it seemed as if something was lifted, right? And, and at about midnight... <laughs> my arms went up in the air. My voice went, you know, far too loud for a house filled with children that are trying to sleep. And, and I said, I get it. And Corinne was horrified because she was standing right behind me and she was on like Instagram or something and it was silent in the room. Right, so she jumped up and that was enjoyable for me. But that was the moment that I found rest, right? That was the moment that, I felt like I understood enough about him to settle my 
small mind and just glory in his kindness. And so if you would, open up to Genesis 3. And we're going to read this passage that we've all read more times than maybe any other passage in the Bible. Genesis 3, in your Bible, is probably titled the same thing that it's titled in my Bible, which is the fall of man. Genesis 3, and we're going to start in verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And boy, there's a passage to meditate on. Where are you has become just the refrain of my heart this week studying for this. It's a sermon unto itself. But nonetheless, in verse 10, he answered and he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And God's second question (coughs) is answered. But his first question never is. Um, And I would say it never adequately has been. Who told you that you were naked? It's this question that's really bothered me for some reason over, over the last month. Um, should we read that and not feel compelled to say that bothers me, right? I mean, like I was reading, uh, first, I, this is tangential again, I'm doing it already. Um, I'm in too deep. I was reading, uh, first Peter with Corinne, um, at the, at the dinner table about a month ago. Right. And, uh, we're studying this passage is chapter one. And it, it, maybe it's just the way I read the Bible. I don't think it's a bad way to read the Bible. It horrified her right? We're reading it. And I got to this part where it's just like, that's a bad idea. Why would God do that? You know? And she goes, don't say that you heathen. I mean, (laughs) it's God, you know? And, but there's all these things in the Bible that I, I, you know, you can't help but read and go, that doesn't make sense, you know? And and there's got to be something more to that than just to read it and go, well, I'll accept that. doesn't make sense. Whatever. You know, and we, we just move on without thinking about it. So I read all sorts of uh, of commentators and 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 analysts talking about this. And I started with rabbis, being being a good Jew myself. And the rabbis said, even a blind man knows he's naked. This is their kind of broad explanation of what's happening here. Even a blind man knows he's naked, which is to say <clears throat> that we have an awareness of our nudity, right? But is this, this is going to be weird because I'm going to say nudity several times in this message. Is that okay? <laughs> it's, we're all right. all right. But he lacked the awareness of shame associated with that nudity until he sinned, right? When he sinned, then he rightly felt shame for it. But here's a guy surrounded by animals. And they're all naked, right? I mean, it's, it, he didn't feel a shame or an awareness for them. And why would he differ, differentiate at this point? It seems arbitrary. It, was it correct to connect nudity to sin? Was there something sinful about the nudity that should result in shame? Should he have been ashamed in this moment? Right? Christian commentators have read a lot of them and said they, they often speak about this, this lust 
associated with nudity and the need for propriety or for modesty, right? Uh, but at this time, Adam and Eve are the only two people on the planet, right? And they're, they're wed in the eyes of God, joined together as one flesh. So should that be characterized as lust? <coughs> and their relationship, was it suddenly redefined as something that was unwholesome uh, because of their Should we behave modestly in that context? And, and it might seem like a small thing, but I couldn't understand it. So I obsessed about it all month. And every day in my two-hour round trips to work, with radio off in my car, talking out loud to God like a crazy person, because it bothered me to the extent that, 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 that I, I couldn't get beyond it. And, and, and this is the reason. Here, here it is. Before you start thinking that I've lost my, my mind here, this is the reason. This is the first time that man defines himself in the Bible. That didn't occur to me until I was rereading it, you know, about a month ago. That this is the first time that man defines himself. And I think that's important. I think it speaks volumes about who we are, about our perception of ourselves. I never noticed that. And the reading of it began to echo in my, like, worm brain because what does it mean that man would define himself this way? The first definition of man in the Bible and the second time, only the second time man is even spoken in the Bible. We've all heard messages, no doubt, on how God defines himself, right? You say, I am. And then he, he, he would say, you know, the the omega, the beginning, the end, the comforter, the, the, the healer, the, the redeemer, the redeemer. Savior, the Messiah, the friend of sinners. And here we are for the first time, man is defining himself and it follows the same format. It follows the I, the linking verb, and then the descriptive definition, right? Not to become too much of a grammar nerd up here today, but it's the same, it's the same grammatical structure. And this is what he says, you know, I'm, I'm naked. I'm exposed. I'm filled with shame. I'm filled with, with fear because this is not who God created us to be. And in this moment of transparent, transparent introspection, he says, this is what I am now. This is what I am. This is my identity. And I think it's a horrifying thing to see. And, and it's a telling thing to be sure, but it really begins uh, the, in, in, in chapter one. So if you wouldn't mind turning back a couple of pages in your Bible and, and we'll... We'll build back up to it. See, God existing <coughs> outside time, creating time when, when there was only nothingness. A fact that we haven't been, or we hadn't been able to confirm scientifically until Einstein like proposed the theory of relativity, saying that time, space, and matter are codependent qualities and that they couldn't exist without one another and validated in scripture in the very first verse when God says, you know, when, when it's said of God in the beginning, which is time, God created the heavens, which is space and the earth, which is matter. And there you have just this moment of, of scientific achievement in the very first text of scripture, because God did it all and he did it all right there at the beginning, the infinite creating the finite. And, and he breathes and amazement happens. 
he speaks and solar systems spin out into infinite space, right? And, and, and he speaks and birds flutter into the blue expanse. He speaks and a tree births from the soil and, and, and a worm pokes its head out of the mud and I identify with it for some reason. And just life is in every breath that he has. And, and all of it is defined by him, right? All of it carefully defined as good. Verse four, the land. You move your finger down. Verse 10, the land and the sea, it's good. You keep on going down. Verse 12, the plants, they're good. Verse 18, the sun and the moon, it's good. Verse 21, the sea and the sky animals, they're good. Verse 25, the land animals, they're good. It's all just so good. The Hebrew word is tov, tov. I love it, right? Because it means pleasant to the highest nature, valuable in your estimation. It's able to make one happy. And you can just see God creating all of this with this immense smile on his face, speaking life into existence all around him and just smiling from ear to ear, right? If he has ears or smiles, right? And you just you put that on him. And he's so happy, but he hadn't even gotten to his favorite part. He had just set the stage for his masterpiece. Right? Corinne used to paint a lot before we <coughs> had, like, way too many kids. <laughs> and they're amazing, but they're loud and they're everywhere. And... <laughs> And I'd be writing something. I'd be in my office, right? Or I'd be studying for something. She'd set up her easel. She'd put a canvas on it. And she'd lay down this coat. And maybe it's a primary color. Maybe it's a prominent color. Maybe it's just a primer. I don't know what she's doing because I'm not an artist. But I would just watch her face. And she would just have the biggest smile on her face. She'd have her tongue stuck out one side. She's really concentrating. And she's... She can see it all. It's all there already in her mind. This masterpiece that only she could create. Only she is this, is this artist. And so in verse 26, God said, let us make mankind this masterpiece in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground so god created mankind in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them it's a true testament to how inexhaustible god is that you can take a passage like this that You've no doubt read a dozen times. I've read a multitude of times. And you can still discover new things. Talking to Corinne about this the other day because I was just so excited about just this little thing that I found here. But it's, it's remarkable that no matter how deep you want to go, the Bible is never lacking in depth, right? It's not like you'll go a little bit deeper and then you'll go, oh, well, I guess that's it, right? I just pack it up. 
there's just always more to discover. It says there in that verse that he created us in his image. The, the Hebrew word is to sell him. To sell him. If you want to write that down in your notes, it'd be a good thing to write down. It's S E L E M. To sell him. And it's the Hebrew word translated as image in our Bible, but it could also be translated as replica or shadow, which I love. I love the idea of God standing out over his creation, his shadow cast on the soil in the light of the the sun that he had just days before created, right? And looking at that shadow and saying, that's what needs to remain here. That's what needs to stay here, a piece of me, a shadow of God walking in their midst. That's brilliant. I love that. What a beautiful thing. I also find it fascinating that to sell them is the same word that was used in Genesis 5.3. Genesis 5.3 is um, the passage where it speaks Adam begetting Seth, his son. It's said that he begot him in his own image and in his own likeness. And the implication is that this is simply what God did, right? When it came to man, a portion of creation so special that it's as if we were his own sons and daughters, not just a title that we take on, right? Which we've no doubt thought about, read about. You were the sons and daughters of God. And and we hear that but transcending the mere fact that it's a title that you would take on, it's a fact of our creation. We are his children. That's the word that was used. I think that there's this twofold testimony when you consider what it means to be like an actual child of God, his to in his image. And it's all about who God is and what God does. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think about my, my own kids. I'm not the sole creator, obviously, (coughs) right? It's not like I was like, boom, kids. And then they just happen. Um, they have, they have parents. There's two of us. The two of us, you know, pulled our genetics to make, that was weird that I tried to combine my hands and I couldn't. There's, that's gotta be cognitively telling, you know, but, but the two of us pulled our genetics, and uh, and we we have these children that are that are created in our image, in our likeness of who we are and what we do. And Miles looks very much so like Corinne, and so does Leland. Actually, there was some debate, some speculation, and then very considerately, I'm sure, <coughs> um, Corinne and her mom got together. They, you know, I don't want to use the word conspired, but. Um, they they found a picture of Corinne uh, as a kid and just side by side with Miles and with Lee. And um, yeah, that settled it, right? Not that there was, not that they like need, you know, they, they require this visually to be extraordinary. To be extraordinary, they don't, absolutely not. Um, but there's just none of me there. You know, and that's kind of hard to take. <laughs> uh, but Miles, he's very artistic. He's very much so like Corinne. He's, he just, you know, he wakes up in the morning. It's the first thing he does. When they woke up this morning, uh, 
Miles and Leland both came, you know, out of the sliding glass door at the same time, and I was at the kitchen table, still working on this um, because I'm not good at this. And so <laughs> they both walked out at the same time, and Miles uh, said, "Can I draw?" And I thought, "Yeah, that's that's Miles, right? Sounds like Miles." And so I got a piece of paper, I sat down in front of him. And he got out his crayons, and he drew, this time not all over the walls of our house, which is awesome, um, but on, on the paper. And then he took it, and months ago, he put all of his artwork in, like, this box. And then he moved it to what he called for a while, I think, his suitcase, right? Yeah, adorable. And then now he puts it all in, in an Easter basket, and it's just so cute. He fans it all out. An artist, yeah, that's him. Leland, he doesn't care. He's not an artist. That's just not who he is, right? I mean, he's he, like, he drew a picture also in the morning because that's what Miles was doing and then showed it to me. And he's like, you like this? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's good. And he was like, all right, I'll put it in the trash. Who cares? And that's what he did. He just walked over. He just put it in the trash. It's fine. But he walked out of the sliding glass door with his cape on, his Batman cape, which we have tried. Is he wearing it today, by the way, here? Okay, thank goodness. Man, he looks he looks wrong wearing that all day. <laughs> but we've been hard-pressed to take it off all week. You know, he, he has this strange fascination with superheroes, which I don't know where he gets that from. Um, but he's super into Batman, which is the, a good answer, and the Hulk, which is the right answer, <clears throat> and Super Y, which is a super bizarre answer. <laughs> Uh, but if you watch PBS, you know, he's the reading superhero, right? So he's, he's into all three of these guys. And at any given point when he's wearing his cape, he's one of them, you know? And he's obsessive about it. I can be somewhat obsessive about things. Um, and then there's Violet, right? She's finally someone visually that looks like my side of the family. She looks like a tiny version of my grandma, which is convenient because she's named after her, right? Her middle name is Marjorie. And she's playful, and she's smart, and she gives amazing hugs, and she gets all of that from Corinne. None of that is, is from me. Um, but we're created in his image, and it's all about who he is and what he does. And when we see who he is and when we see what he does, we know what we're here to do. We know who we are. We know our own logical definition. And I would argue that the fall didn't actually change that, right? Okay, I'm starting to, I'll pick up the pace. Um, Genesis 3, 3, 22. Um, God speaking after the fall says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So the fall didn't change this, in case you're thinking like, well, now that's, that's then, and then the fall happened, and then there's now, right? Actually, after the fall, God said in a very, you know, bad way, he, they somehow become more like us, right? In, in a destructive way to actualize our potential for free will, to bring tremendous calamity or tremendous glory, to this planet, we have become more like him. And it's easy to see why he would be willing to do what he did for us all throughout time, but especially with his son, when we understand the true weight of being his to sell him, his child. Because 
what wouldn't we do for our own children? <coughs> so who is he and what does he do? Listen, God is one and God is perfect, right? And I think that we, as his people during this dispensation, the church, are meant to represent God <coughs> on earth. Just like my kids are fragments of us, right, to varying measure together, they create a pretty good picture of us, right? Um, we, as many, exist <coughs> best as one, together making a singular image. Um, it's as if he took himself, right, and just broke himself off piece by piece. And a fragment, a functional fragment, was given to Ben. So that only Ben can manifest just so perfectly this attribute. A functional fragment ripped off, given to Colleen. And Colleen just perfectly represents this aspect. And all of us together create what only he can create. Ephesians 2.10, if you want to write it down. Ephesians 2.10 says we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, right? You've read that before. Connect that to, to Genesis 1. We're created to do good works. What, what, did, what does God do? He does good works, right? What does that mean? It means tov, right? It's what God did. And it's what we do. We're, he says, you're created to do this. It's prepared in advance for us. God says, it's not about me. It's, it's not a me thing anymore. It's an us thing. You're created to do this. We are created to do this now together. To, to bring that which is valuable, bring that which can bring happiness uh, to this earth. We're created to do this now together, right? You as my child created in my image, my tesselum. In John 14, 12, he tells, he tells them, whoever believes in me will do works, uh, will do the works that I've been doing. They'll do them even greater things because I'm going to the Father, I, I read that verse for so many years, just going, no, that's not right. How could that verse possibly exist in this Bible? Because I will never do anything greater than him. I won't. Will you? No. How could that possibly be true? But then he would look at us and he'd say, you know, but we, we, yes, as his body together, pieces of who he is doing, pieces of what he does. And together, together we do it all. Well, I love puzzles, right? I love puzzles. They're super fun. It's like I never grew out of that. We had an inclement weather day <coughs> at my school last month because it was windy and desert. So like you have these children, gale force wind just tumbling down corridors, you know? And so they, they shut down the school for that. And the kids can't leave the room. And I, you know, we played a lot of different games. Favorite activity choice, board games. Because then they get to play shoots and ladders and checkers and operation and all these games that I have, Connect Four. And I get to play with a couple of them and make a puzzle, right? <coughs> so we made, we built 
I, I worked with these four girls, and we made the most majestic unicorn puzzle. <coughs> right? The most majestic one you've ever seen. Every piece fit together perfectly, complementing and completing the others. And by the time it was done, you would look at it and you'd say, that is a remarkable unicorn, right? Because all the pieces fit together perfectly. When they all fit together perfectly, you got to see the image as a whole, right? And then the next recess came, and that same group of girls, they rallied together, they convinced the class to vote for board games for another recess because they really enjoyed building a puzzle, and they found another one. They pulled in two more girls, and I have a total of six of them, working with me at the puzzle table. And they said, we want to build this 100-piece Barbie puzzle. <laughs> and I said, let's go for it. <clears throat> and in about 10 minutes, we had almost the entire 100-piece Barbie puzzle put together. These are some puzzle-building masters. But as we got close, we noticed that it would never be right. It would never be right because a few essential pieces were missing. There's a piece uh, from Barbie's hand and a piece from Barbie's dress. But the reality is that it could have been a piece from anywhere. It didn't matter because all pieces were essential to have the completed puzzle. Every single one of them. But without them, you just don't have the same image. How important are you to who God is on this planet? How important are you to what God is on this planet? You might not feel essential. I mean, you might feel completely inconsequential, but here's the reality. The image of him here will not be complete without you, without me. All of us working together to create who he is and what he does. Functional fragments. When one is missing, it's not the same. This describes us. That. As his to sell him. You are my children. Every single one of you. A piece of who I am. A piece of what I'm doing. In Genesis uh, chapter 2, we see him build on this, this definition. This is Adam assigned a task, task in paradise, and yet a mute, completely mute in the story up until this point in verse 23. These are the first words that Adam says in scripture. Read it with me. Verse 23, it says, the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she is taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The Hebrew there is etzem, etzem, besar, besar. And um, I didn't have to look that one up uh, because I'm reminded of that one every day. Uh, it's, it's engraved in my wedding ring. And um, on my wedding day, I took out that ring and I went to put it on, and then I noticed this little glimmer and a cut inside, and I read it. And if I wasn't terrified that it wouldn't come off my finger, I would take it off my finger right now. But 
It's um, that's um, basar, basar, and it speaks of wholeness, of finding your exact counterpart in another. Right, that missing piece, literally for Adam, of course, because Eve was created from this rib that was removed from him. Right, but figuratively for all of us when we find that mate. And so many of you have felt that, of course, today, right? You've been there where you feel this sense of being whole. The, the word can be translated as another word, though, that I think is interesting because it's a word that I'm not sure is a word. And it's this. It's, it's the word self-same. And when you look it up, that, it'll be there. Self-same. Two people, so different, completely different experiences, different thought processes, different everything, and yet sharing a complex union of self, right? That, that it's not uh, yourself and herself or himself, it's us self, right? It's self-same, which is just a wonderful thing to consider. These are Adam's first words, brilliant, poetic, uh, beautiful. They speak of union and communion and Let's take a look at, you know, when he gets to his next words, how they compare. Uh, in chapter 3, we're continuing. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat uh, fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly, or you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, this is such an interesting passage to me because uh, here we have Eve having a conversation with the devil. You know, how often do we read in scripture about people having conversations with God or uh, God revealing himself in some sort of, uh, you know, grand way throughout scripture. And, and, and we think nothing of it because it's, it's somewhat commonplace, right? When we should, every opportunity that we have to converse with God is actually a miracle in and of itself, right? It's just miraculous that we can come before the creator of the universe and talk to him. <clears throat> but this is something of a different order, and yet we read it as if it's, you know, somewhat inconsequential, right? I was flying out of Ontario one time, and uh, Mike Ness was boarding ahead of me. And no one recognized him, right? Uh, probably no one knew him or had heard his music, but social distortion <coughs> was like my bread and butter for years, right? Um, I love their I love their music. I, I love that sound. I love his songs. And I saw him and I wanted to express my appreciation, you know, for what he had done in his music. And he reached down to pick up his guitar, which was like less than a foot away from me. And he just leaned down uh, to, to pick it up. He had his hand on the case and we locked eyes. And and I opened my mouth and I nodded my head. And I said, huh, which is not even a coherent hi. <laughs> I mean, that's not even a greeting. It's just a sound, right? But that's all I 
could do in his, in his presence. And that was just Mike Ness, right? Someone that like no one else in the airport even recognized. They were just like, oh, who's that guy with all the tattoos, right? But, but here is one of the rare biblical occurrences or even extra biblical occurrences where a person is just hanging out having a historically documented conversation with the devil, right? That's a message in and of itself, which I will try and not spend too much time on. Um, first, but first, the devil undercuts God's word, right? He rephrases it as a negative, doesn't he? <laughs> and he says, you know, God won't let you do something. Ah, it's a, it's a real bummer, that dude. You know, it'd be great if you had some like real freedom going on over there in that life, you know? And uh, Jewish writers, they, they love telling stories, right? And uh, they say that the woman, as soon as she asserted this, this, this statement where she says, uh, you can't even touch the fruit, right? That the, the serpent pushed in, right? He leaned in really close and inched her ever closer to the tree until she was touching the tree. And then he said, see, right? You've touched it and you're still alive, Maybe, therefore, you can eat of it, and you will not surely die, right? Ah, I just love that picture, right? Because then you can almost see her thinking about it, and, and, and you could feel uh, the, 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 the fruit in her hand, questioning, going, I am touching it. And, and he contradicted God's word, and then he removed the consequences of it. He said, no, you're not going to die, Right? You'll be more alive if you do this, in fact. You'll be more alive than you've ever been in your entire life. And isn't that what we do, right? That, that's exactly what we think when we do what we know we ought not do. That there's life in this, that I'm missing something. It can be found in this, right? There's greater happiness. Even if it's only for a moment, you won't die. You'll be more alive if you do this. And, 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 and then that, that's, what, that's what God is really doing, isn't he, right? He's, he's keeping us from this life experience that could make us truly happy. And it's remarkable how lazy the devil is, right? Because he hasn't changed his strategy at all since this very first conversation. But if it isn't broke, why fix it? It totally works so often. And we fall for it. Even when we know we're happy, we go, I'm not happy, right? I'll just do that, right? Even when we know that's not the answer, we go, I don't know, maybe that's the answer this time. I'll do that, right? And it's so bizarre, that we still listen to that whisper. Listen, I love cheeseburgers. <clears throat> um, that was a weird transition. But I know it's not a refined palate, right, that desires such a pedestrian dish. But there's very little about me that is refined. <laughs> I love cheeseburgers. They're amazing. They're kind of the perfect food. And there's some vegetables in there, too. So I feel like I'm eating healthy. If it were up to me, I would eat cheeseburgers every single day. But Corinne wants me to keep living for some reason. <laughs> so the, the whisper, right, it comes in and says, just eat it, right? You'll be fine. There's happiness there, right? Do you remember the last time you had a cheeseburger? It was sensational, right? And so I want the cheeseburger. And when she says no, I want to lash out. I'm sorry. You never grow out of that, right? I'm still a toddler. And I just think, you know, why do you do this to me, woman? <laughs> That's wrong. I shouldn't have done that. 
Why do you feed me broccoli? Does the world really need cauliflower? You know, why am I having carrots and hummus rather than pretzels, which are obviously more delicious? And why pretzels at all when I can just be eating more cheeseburgers, right? And, and it, it, makes me, it, it makes me frustrated. And I think if you love me, you would let me. You would set me free to eat cheeseburgers every single day for every single meal because that's exactly what I would do. But no, no, it's because she loves me. I think that she has <laughs> attempted to keep me from this thing that could harm me, right? It won't make you happy. It won't make you happy. It'll bring death. It'll leave you hollow. It'll rob you of something that is so hard to get back, right? And in this case, it was really pretty impossible for them to get back. Here you have two people in absolute paradise, absolute paradise. They have everything they could ever want. And they hear a whisper that says, you're not really happy, are you? And they're like, nope. But that is so us. It is so us. I feel like in so many ways every day because of who God is and who God's allowed to be around every day is paradise. And yet we still have this nagging whisper that tickles in our ears and says, no, it's not. There's more. Do that more. Go for that more. That's where real happiness is. You don't have it yet. You need it. It's out there. And you can make an argument that Eve was tricked, but you can't make the same argument about Adam. And we continue in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also uh, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, (coughs) <coughs> who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Um, but the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So the last thing said before the fall, did you catch it when he spoke to his wife? It was communion. It was perfection. It was wholeness. Said after the fall is separation and shame and an overwhelming sense of loss. He's afraid to be seen by God. He's also afraid to be seen by, his, by others, by his own wife, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. You know, this woman that, that he loved so completely that he recognized as this complex self with him. Hiding in the bushes was an attempt to conceal himself from God, right? But the fig leaves were, was an attempt to conceal who they were from each other. Because they did that before God even showed up. They, they, they realized that they were just exposed and naked. And they couldn't stand the sight of themselves. Of themselves. And so they hid themselves from each other. And why would they hide themselves? Why were they so afraid that they were naked? In a world where literally everything is naked. 
None of the animals are wearing fig leaves. None of them tried to conceal themselves. God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you that there was something wrong with you? Who? And, and there's no answer to that question. Nowhere. You won't find it. There's only the implication that you told yourself. You told yourself. And I think we need to hear that. Because God created them as his own child. He loved them. He said, you're my son. You're my daughter. He looked at them and he said, you're good. This is pleasing. This makes me happy. And we look at ourselves and we say, this isn't good. I need to cover this up as best I can. Adam defines himself as naked in a moment of self-awareness, in this moment of introspection. He looks at himself and he says, it's not good. And it's amazing to me after reading this passage so many times, agonizing over it, that we are harder on ourselves than God is. We're harder on ourselves. Because Adam looked at himself and he said, this isn't good, this. And God looked at him and said, dude, I just told you yesterday that you were. That you were. So what changed? And they sinned. Right? They disobeyed. They, they made a tremendous mistake uh, that, that rippled through time and space and has been passed down through generations of their children. But being naked wasn't it. Being naked wasn't that. And it seems like that is what they were really worried about which is just so bizarre to me. But I relate completely to it. That once they saw that they possessed the capacity for failure, they began closing themselves off. There was this moment where they realized that they could fail. And then as soon as they realized that, they began building walls all around them and shutting themselves off, concealing themselves. And I think we're all, if we're being honest here this morning, we're all afraid of people really knowing us. You know, even our own Adam, even our own Eve, really seeing us. That's one of the reasons, if I were being honest with you, why I I don't like to preach. I don't feel comfortable doing it. I never have. Never have. I feel exposed. I feel vulnerable. I feel like if I let people really see me, then they'll really see me. And that's scary. It's, it's horrifying. It's just easier to hide behind bushes and cover myself with fig leaves and recreate myself, redefine myself, reclassify myself to pretend to be something else to pretend like I have no part in who he is and no part in what he does because the minute you step out into who he is the moment you step out into what he does you become vulnerable you become exposed to a degree I want you to see your God in that moment that you do that because he doesn't come stomping through the garden. He doesn't come screaming 
at his fallen children. He doesn't say, you messed up, now get out. He comes in and he simply says, where are you? Where are you hiding, son? Where are you hiding, daughter? Adam was the one that messed up. He should have sought out God, but God sought out him. And what's more than that is in verse 21, the same chapter, it says that the Lord God himself made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. How sweet and sad is that? You feel like you need this. Let me do it for you adequately. And God provided a covering, but in the covering, there was need for a sacrifice. The covering was made of skins. And the sacrifice for the appropriate covering was just such a wonderful picture of Christ and what Christ did for us in providing our garments of righteousness with his own sacrifice on the cross. And though they were fallen, they were still his children, still created in his image, still his to sell him, right? Part of who he is, part of what he's doing because you are more important than your mistakes. I think all of us need to just take a moment, right? To let that set in. We are more important than our mistakes. You've made them. I've made them. And I think there's just a time where we need to stop hiding behind them. You're more than your fears, your insecurities, your anxieties, or whatever other excuses that you have, that I have, that we conveniently like to set up before us as a shrubbery to guard our shame. What little amount that we cling to that we think is important, more important than really allowing ourselves to be who he is and to do what he does We aren't defined by those things. We're defined by him. He created us. He has the right to define us. And clothed by him, his to sell him. You don't have to understand that. You just need to rest in it. You need to stop wriggling around trying to fight your way out of his hand because you're his son. You're his daughter. You're the most precious thing in the world to him. You created in his, in his image a piece of him like this great puzzle where every piece is essential and without it, it isn't him. It's something less than that. And so I believe as we close in prayer uh, that, that the best thing to do would be to very simply quiet our hearts and hear the voice of God as he calls out still this morning and says, where are you? We can honestly in our hearts say, here I am, and this is who I am. And now what would you have me to do as a functional fragment of you? Oh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word as difficult as it can be sometimes. Wrestle with the truths that we find in it. To hold it up as a mirror to ourselves and say, 
That's not just Adam. That's me. I do that. I hide like that. I hear your voice. I pretend so often like I don't because it's so much easier to not. I don't want to do that anymore. And Lord, as you call out this morning to all of us in different states hiding for different dealing with different definitions that we've set up before ourselves, ignoring the definition that you've given to us, I pray, God, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd open our eyes, and that we would see what we really are. Not as naked and filled with shame. He'd open our eyes and see what we really are as your precious son, your precious daughter, a piece of you created in you to do good works and to join together to make this world your, your masterpiece. Praise you for it, Lord. Thank you for this morning. Your name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.